Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. are listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity. To order your free copy of the magazine, go to premierchristianity.com slash free copy. And I'm joined in the studio today by Victoria Hislop. Hello. Good afternoon, Ruth. That Island is one of my favourite books and we're going to be talking about that later. But I think it's fair to say that you've had a rather roundabout career. You've been a journalist, you've done PR, you've done advertising. Now you're obviously a novelist. Was there a clear path in all of that? I think the only thing that links everything that I've done is that some kind of writing was involved. I'd say that's the the kind of common um, thread that runs through. Um, And I always think even now that I'm quite likely to do something different again, because I'm a great believer in change, you know. And unless you're, let's say, a doctor and you have a burning passion from age 18 to be a doctor and you take the exams and that's what you are for the rest of your life but when you're writing you can apply it in so many different ways so I have a feeling that I won't always write novels I have a sort of fantasy about becoming um, a poet or maybe a script writer you know but it would still be the actual activity would be putting words down on paper so we'll see. And how did you get into writing novels? Well, it was a completely... That was a sudden change Mm. um, in terms of going from writing facts to writing fiction. And although my novels all involve a lot of historical fact, they are fundamentally about people who just utterly made up and from my head. Um, And that came about very suddenly... Very simply, one day when I went to this little island off Crete, which used to be a leprosy hospital, um, and as I stepped off the boat as a tourist, like everybody else who goes there, um, I wanted to write about it, but, but I didn't want to write about it factually. I felt that I couldn't really convey... Um, what had struck me about that place just in in factual terms that I needed to use my imagination Um, so I kind of from one minute to the next became a fiction writer rather than a fact writer so it was very very sudden and was that quite a difficult transition it actually wasn't um, because it seemed to me that all the people that I were writing about that I was writing about were in my mind they were real, mm. which sounds a bit kind of airy fairy. <laughs> it's very much how it felt um, that the people that I were this kind of conjuring up in my imagination, they were all people that could have been there. So there's a sort of that's in a way how I, all my novels are. I have to believe that even if what I'm writing is not actually true, that it could have been true. And lots of people ask me, and that's always when I know for myself I'm on the right track, that people say, oh, they were real, weren't they? Or it it is just a true story you're writing. And I say, it's very nice of you to say that, but no, you know, it is completely fictional. Um, So the idea, the basic idea for that book, which was essentially the relationship between the doctor and one of the patients, um, that came to me in the first 15 minutes of being in this place, in this tiny island, and then it grew from there. So I I can't... I think I should say, oh, it was a terrible struggle. You know, people (laughs) who write fiction, you know, sometimes make out that it's some sort of climbing a mountain, you know, with the snow beating on your back with your bare hands, you know, and no food for six months. But it's it's not like that for me. You know, I enjoy it. It has to flow. Um, otherwise, I'd, as I say, I'd stop and do something else. And you've touched on the fact that you weave a lot <clears throat> of history into your stories. Was that intersection between kind of creative writing and, and historical nar- narrative, was that always the intention when you were writing? Yes. I mean, it comes about in the beginning, really, that kind of uh, inclusion of history, because I want to learn things myself. Mm. So with all the books that I write, apart from the latest one, which um, has lots of fact but is largely fictional rather than probably 50-50, I want to research and study and learn something for myself myself. 
and then the reader is delivered during the course of the story some of what I've learned. Um, but I think because I didn't study history at school or at university, I'm sort of catching up with history now. Um, so I do a lot of reading and, for example, my book um, that was about the Spanish Civil War, I spent two and a half years in libraries researching that. And a lot of it was really just for myself. You know, it's not all in, in the novel because you have to leave so much out, but I became very obsessed with that historical period um, to the point where my children said, you know, are you... Are you doing a PhD? You know, have you become a student? And for you know, two years I am a student, and then the sort of final stage is actually to write the fiction. But it's brilliant, isn't it? Because you almost don't realise that you're learning all of this history because it's put so beautifully in a story. So you find yourself as the reader learning all this amazing stuff that I suppose would be quite dry if you were just kind of in a library looking through history. Well, I hope, in a way, that I'm doing a lot of hard work for mm. my reader. Um, because very often history books are about um, war, you know, they're about political agreements and disagreements. They're mostly about men. I mean, that's essentially if you go into the British Library and I can, you know, I've never gone in there and counted the number of books by men, but most history books are written by men and they're about the actions of men. Um, and so I'm reading a lot of very, dry, what I regard even as very, very dry stuff. And there's usually very little about the social history and how, you know, how it was for the women left behind. And that's usually kind of where my interest drifts in the end. It's towards, you know, the effect of the men's decisions on the women and children at home. If I was sort of making a general statement mm. about what I do I think that is quite a big part of it So you're filling in a lot of the gaps and helping us create a much fuller picture Yes, I hope so and it's also what it would feel like to live that history to actually not know what was coming next So for example at the moment I'm writing um, about Greece during the 1940s and you know, at the moment that the Germans invade Greece they don't know what's going to happen they don't know how long they'll be there, whether it's going to be for six months or six years or the rest of time. So you have to kind of take yourself back to that moment. And that's the bit that I really enjoy, making sure that when my characters are living any moment in history, they're living the present. Mm. They're not, they don't have any knowledge about the future, whereas when you're the writer, you obviously do. So it's, it's fun, it's really enjoyable to make yourself go back in time. And you've mentioned Greece a lot, and, and I mentioned before that The Island is one of my favourite books. And actually, off the back of reading your book, I went to visit Plaka, which oh. is where a lot of the book is based. And we obviously had an incredibly moving time on Spinalonga, which is the island that used to be a leprosy colony. Where did your love of Greece come from? It came from my very first visit when I was a teenager, and I fell in love with it. Um, in the way, you know, you some, sometimes people do respond. I don't always feel ecstatic, for example, if I go to Germany. I don't have this sort of desire to go and live there. But with Greece, I had that feeling, that sort of strength of um, kind of response right from the very first visit when I was 17. So, and ever since then, I've been back, not just every year, I go every month now. So it's a very sort of big part of my life. And you're obviously an ambassador for Lepra now. Did that come about through writing The Island? Yes, it did, very much so. It's just, it was a kind of coincidental thing that after I'd written the book, a friend of mine said, oh, I'm, I've been asked to go to this ball, she said, in London, you know, a fun, big fundraising thing, and it's something to do with leprosy, and isn't your book about leprosy? And, oh, do you want to come with me? It was very casual, like that. And I said, oh, that sounds fun. Um, I'll come with you. And, you know, I went along and I'm not even sure I knew the name Lepra at that point. I didn't know anything about the charity. And, uh, you know, from that day onwards, I've been, you know, extremely involved and, uh, you know, now work with them and support them. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been out to India to see their work. Um, so, 
Yes, it's very, very much a part of my life. But it was a lovely coincidence mm. that randomly, you know, this friend invited me to something. So, And do you think your passion for leprosy victims was stirred up by some of the research that you were doing for the island? Oh, very much so. I mean, during um, the course of it, I obviously read everything I could lay my hands on um, about leprosy during the past and how people were treated and what the development of the um, medicine and the therapy was. And that part was pretty scientific and for me very challenging because I'm not a scientist. To be honest, I had seen people with leprosy because I'd been on holiday in India quite a few times, but I hadn't realised that that's what it was. And I hadn't ever sort of studied, you know, photographs of what can happen to people if they're untreated. Um, So definitely, yes, great, great sympathy. I think you'd have to be very cold-hearted not to um, feel great, you know, sympathy for people who suffer from leprosy. Um, when you actually realise what happens to people and why it happens. Um, And during the time that I was spending in Crete, just after the English version of the book came out, it then came out in Greek, and I met and became very close friends with somebody in Crete who'd suffered from leprosy, and he became one of my best friends. Um, And, you know, he was very obviously damaged by leprosy, but the most extraordinary human being I've ever met. Um, And although I'd already written the book and I had my characters were funny and some of them weren't very nice or they were incredibly kind, you know, every human quality that you might find in any community, in my community of people with leprosy, there were people of all kinds. And uh, Manoli Fundulaikis was the kindest incredibly clever man uh, very funny um, very sort of philosophical so we had to spend a lot of time together and um, I kind of realised that leprosy is, is not something that affects your mind it just affects your body so you know I know kind of at very first hand what somebody with leprosy also feels like because he had felt the full force of stigma from having these very clear um, signs of having had the disease. You know, there was no doubt about it. His his face was very... It was an interesting face. I mean, he, he had a beautiful face when you knew this man. But for somebody seeing him for the first time, they might be slightly shocked. And I think he'd spent probably 30 years since the the treatment that he'd had that was successful, you know watching the reaction of people to him and uh, not always comfortably. And you mentioned sort of the lack of female narrative in a lot of the history that you were reading and a lot of your books have sort of predominantly female protagonists. Was that an intentional thing and and, and why did that come about? I think as I definitely know about women better than I know about what makes men tick. So, I mean, they always say you should write about what you know, and that's probably the one thing that I write about that I do know. You know, I didn't know about leprosy, I didn't know about Spanish Civil War, th- those bits were all things I had to learn. But actually the the sort of um, the way women think and feel, I guess, is something I'm better kind of qualified to write about than the same subjects with men. And where do you find, I mean, this is such a vague question, but where do you find a lot of your inspiration for writing? It's usually um, derelict buildings, oddly. if I, I don't think that's what I do, but when I look back at the pattern of what I've written about and where the genesis of the idea came from, it was nearly always from going to some empty building. Um, certainly that was the case with Spinalonga, um, with The Thread actually with The Return, um, definitely with The Sunrise, which is about an entire derelict city where 40,000 people lived and in Cyprus, uh, which is empty now and standing there. I'm very inspired by, in a way, the atmosphere of an empty building because I think there's always clues to what happened there and then you just sort of people it with your characters. So, yes, dereliction... And I love dereliction. 
And do you think your Christian faith informs what you write about? Um, my Christian faith is a very sort of variable factor. Um, I had an interesting upbringing in that my parents were both atheists and we weren't baptised as children, my sister and I, so as a sort of teenage rebellion, we became born-again Christians. <laughs> and my parents, I think, were... They weren't exactly horrified. They were just sort of slightly flabbergasted. Perplexed, that's a very good <laughs> word. So we would... My sister and I um, would go to church not once on a Sunday but twice you know and if there was a sort of six o'clock communion we I mean this is when we were 15 when everybody wow. else was sort of smoking and drinking and you know probably taking drugs we went to church to annoy our parents so <laughs> that's such a great rebellion it isn't was it? very unusual but it was it was pretty effective because I think they were you know because we used to preach to them as well we used to try and kind of evangelize and I remember having my mother sitting on my bed and I was saying but mom you know you're going to hell how does it make you feel you know it was quite extraordinary I was reading um James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man at the time, which has some pretty horrifying descriptions, you know, Jesuit faith uh, descriptions of what happens to you when you die if you're not going to heaven. Um, and, I, and my mother was... And I was reading her out. I'll never forget it. Reading her these passages of James Joyce to try and convey to her, you know, quite how awful it would be for her. Anyway, <laughs> very self-righteous. Um, and, you know, over the years, it's kind of... It comes and goes, my Christian faith. I'll be very honest. It's not always, you know, completely a stable thing. It's not... I genuinely don't believe it's why most people do good thing I mean you don't have to be a Christian to want to help other people so I'm I'm sort of very firm and my children I don't think they have a particular faith but they both I think spend more time you know helping others probably than I do so they're sort of motivated by humanitarian kind of sense of what's right and wrong um, so yeah, I'd say I have faith, but I'm not sure I would always call it a Christian faith. You know, it's a faith that we're here to try and make the world a better place or a less awful place, you know, which right now is not always kind of easy to believe anyone can do. You know, one does despair a little bit. But, yeah, I think my faith is in the fact that most people are fundamentally good and you mentioned that your faith kind of comes and goes and sometimes you're not sure about it and actually your husband Ian Hislop the um the the editor of the satirical magazine Private Eye has talked quite openly about kind of his struggles and the fact that his faith sometimes waxes and wanes yeah and I love that honesty do you, I mean do you think we need to be a bit more honest about our struggles because I think sometimes we see Christians in the media who have just got this sort of perfect shiny faith and you think they can't possibly think that all the time can yeah. they yeah I, I don't think people can but I'm sure there are some who can um but I think there's too much to question, isn't there? And I don't think we should ever stop questioning. You know, we're not sort of here to just accept, and I find that most things quite difficult to accept. I mean, that's the thing that we've definitely brought the children up to do, to question everything, which is quite annoying, you know, when they're little and they're saying, why, why, why? But I think even as adults, we have to continue asking why and questioning. Um, and there are so many fantastic books to read now which question things. I've just read one by somebody called Sam Harris and it's about free will and it's really extraordinary because it's scientific experiments that show before I pick up this glass of water if they do a scan of my brain, I decided to pick it up before I picked it up but it was the neuron, you know, so what is it? Have I? Did I really pick that up because of free will or was it some pre-set pattern of actions that I'm about to take and all that's fascinating and um, you know we have to keep reading all these thoughts all these philosophers um, some of which may well go against bible teaching and do you think you bring some of that kind of questioning into into your writing yes and sometimes people don't particularly like that questioning I mean I think 
um, let's say, for example, at the moment I'm writing about the Greek Civil War, which was a struggle between the right and the left, and I fundamentally think that if I had to choose between being a communist or being a fascist, I know I would go towards communism because the belief that everyone in some way should have an equal amount, that they are equal, because I think we all are equal, fundamentally. No person is better than another person. But at the same time, then when you start exploring more, there were some horrific uh, atrocities perpetrated by communists, you know, for example, during the civil war that they had in Greece. And at the same time, atrocities perpetrated by the right but you know so it's not black and white it's not the communists were good the fascists were bad end of story it's everything's much more complex than that um so yeah no, nothing everything's gray shades of gray and do you think stories are an important element to kind of explore some of that yes i think we've always told stories before people wrote down facts they were recording myths and mythology you know storytelling is always being used to um, I suppose many of them are very moral you know Greek mythology you know is all about people who behave well um, and badly and quite often the people who behave badly have a you know come to a sticky end um, you know a lot of sort of fundamental sort of principles of life are being taught through through stories and do you think story has a big part to play in the Christian faith as well? Yeah. I mean, lots of people regard the Bible as a story, but they would still go along with the story. I think they do that every Christmas. You know, there is still, for some people, a story that's being played out. They don't, you know, go to church. They don't believe in the virgin birth, etc., etc. But, you know, they love to celebrate Christmas. There's something still fundamentally that kind of shapes some of the patterns of our year and uh, people get a lot out of that. Well, and that was actually how C.S. Lewis came to faith, wasn't it? He, uh, through talking to Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, came to see the Christian story as, as a myth, but as like a true myth. And it was that kind of being drawn into the story and the big meta-narrative of Christianity that actually in the end sort of gave him the leap that he needed into faith. Yeah, so importance of story. Yeah. yeah. And, and finally, if you could write about anything in the future... What would it be? I think Greece. It always inspires me. Um, I go, as I say, every month, every other month sometimes, if I can't get there. Um, but there's always something. I reckon I could write a novel from an idea that I would have every month. It's just full of inspiration. I totally lied. I'm going to ask one more question. Is there anything that you definitely wouldn't write about? Oh, God, that's a much harder <laughs> question. <laughs> um, Britain. I can't really do British people as characters. I find it very difficult. Occasionally there's someone with a walk-on part. Um, and I once wrote a short story which was entirely British characters and I just didn't believe in them. I'm, I can't explain that, but I find it... Maybe I'm too close. I don't mm. have the distance. So I think I will never write a story set in York. I will safely say that. <laughs> finally, sorry, the second finally. Um, and really finally now, if there are any budding writers out there trying to write novels, where would you suggest that they start? Oh, I, the cliche would be at the beginning. Where would they start? For me, I always write a synopsis. I mean, I do do it quite in a very organised way because I think you have to know where you're going. Even if you start with your ending, you have an idea for the ending of a story, you still need to have a structure, I believe. I think it's much harder just to sit down and wonder where it's going and not really know because I think you could get quite kind of lost halfway and so you need to have some point, you know, some kind of markers so you're getting from A to B to C to D um, and really write about something that you would want to read 
don't imagine your audience. You're, as a writer, you are your first audience. And if you're bored as you're writing, then you can bet your last um, sort of 50p that your audience will be. So you write it primarily for yourself. Imagine you're telling yourself a story and you've got to be listening. Brilliant. And if we want to find out more about you, Victoria, where is the best place for us to go? I have a website okay. which has things about me and what Great. I'm doing and events and that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, pieces that I write, various bits and bits and bobs. What's your website? It's called victoriahislop.com. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Victoria. Thank you. You have been listening to The Profile with me, Ruth Jackson and Victoria Hislop. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. To order your free copy of the magazine, go to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Up next, Dave Rose speaks to Terry Storch from the YouVersion Bible app. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. How Santa Stole Christmas. In the latest Premier Christianity magazine, find out how Christians can win Christmas back again from the over-commercialised version The Shops Sell Us. Plus, could artificial intelligence spell the end of the human race? We chart the rise of the robots. Five people whose dreams led them to faith tell their story. Claire Musters shares how a disastrous decision forced her to take off the mask in church and meet John Mark Comer, the pastor to millennials reaching America's most secular city. All that plus much more. Get your free edition at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, I'm Dave Rose. Now, if you read the Bible on your phone, chances are you do it using the YouVersion Bible app. Well, prepare to meet the co-founder of it. The YouVersion Bible app has almost 300 million downloads worldwide in over a thousand languages and brings God's word to millions of people, along with interactivity, reading plans and devotionals every single day. I spoke to Terry Storch about founding it and about his role as Digerati pastor at Life Church. I began by asking him about his own journey of faith. So my journey and my story um, starts with a great family that uh, I kind of label as a morals focused family, but not really a Christian, not really a Christian home. And and I was an athletic kid, and that was kind of my church, if you will, is that the church of soccer as a uh, American soccer, <laughs> as Americans um, would say. So football here, yeah, uh, and then quickly transitioned into tennis. Um, and so that was kind of my uh, my church of uh, uh, of growing up, if you will, of of living in that. And I um, I had a uh, a amazing encounter with Christ when I was 21 years old, and so basically my first walk through the door um, of a church is when is when I gave my life to Christ. And wow. so um, lots to that story. T- um, tell us a bit more about yeah. that story. What what happened? Why were you there? Yeah. So um, my. My life from the outside would have looked um, quite glamorous and pretty amazing. I was a um, I was a young entrepreneur that um, was doing quite well for myself, um, but internally I was in shambles, and and my life was. Um, was just broken and a mess, and and I had found myself just in about uh, as deep a pit as you could find, um, striving for all things from the world to to answer you know to answer the question that now we recognize that can only be answered by Christ, mm-hmm. and tried to fill that gap with everything that you can imagine and. I was uh, I got into an argument with my fiance at the time and and stormed out of uh, our condo at the time and um, was not really in a state to be driving, um, but uh, gathered myself together and and drove off and ended up in a parking lot. Um, 
and I remember it like it was yesterday, and and we're we're multi decades away from this now. And and I remember looking up in my car and didn't know God at the time, and I just said, God, what what is wrong with me? Um, what I don't understand. And and literally when I opened my eyes, I looked at this sign that was in the parking lot. It was in kind of a a, a strip mall type of a parking mm-hmm. lot. And at the top of that sign was a church sign, um, and it had the pastor's name on it, and it had the service times. And I remember thinking is that I've tried everything except church. And so that was a Saturday night. I drove home, and that next Sunday I came to church. Um, and it was in a, it's in kind of a theater environment, if you mm-hmm. will, that, uh, that see, ah, it was probably 300 people that were there. And I remember like it was yesterday, the pastor just locked eyes with me and I felt like there was no one else in the room and he was staring at me. Um, and his message just resonated at the end. He, uh, he gave a call to Christ. He gave a very clear um, salvation call of what it means to follow Jesus. And I knew right then and there is that that's what I was missing. That's what I needed. And I stood up, I walked forward, gave my life to Christ. And, and that became my journey uh, when I was 20. I think I was 21, almost 22 at the time. Wow. And by then, you mentioned earlier on that you had you were kind of a successful entrepreneur. That's correct. By then, in kind of the, the world of technology, yeah. right? Yes. At the time, it was technology. Back then, it was telecommunications. Technology looked yeah. a lot yeah. different. Very uh, different technology than nowadays. In the early 90s. Um, so it was technology, just a lot different than what we know tech as today. And so did, I mean, because everyone has their own story about when they become a Christian and the impact it has on their life, the changes that they see. Tell us a bit about that with with you, Terry. What, what, What changes did you see and what direction did it send you in? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the direction and changes that immediately happened is that, as I talked about, is that um, my life was pretty much in shambles and and addicted to all of the wrong things, if you will. Um, and I knew that that needed to change. And my strategy, because um, I'm I'm a very strategic thinker, is that I knew that I couldn't just remove some things in in my life without adding other things back in to fill those voids. And I knew all of the areas that I needed to remove from my life. Um, and so what I decided to do um, is that as I exited that church service um, and met with a counselor and, and the counselor um, gave me some words of, words of advice, um, which were fantastic. And real simply put is you need to read your Bible. You need to, um, you need to show up at church on a regular basis. You need to serve because getting outside of yourself, um, you're going to see great fruit. You know, you're going to get great fruit from that. And if you just focus on those three, it's a great thing to start with. It's like, great. So as I walked out, um, I heard this just ruckus and rumbling in a room and I peeked in and it was children's ministry. It was, it was kids having a great time. And there was just something that resonated with that with me is because I didn't have that growing up and it just looked fun. And I remembered the counselor telling me I needed a volunteer. And so who's this creepy young 20 year old that's wanting to volunteer with, with kids. And so I, I found the pastor and, and, and got his contact information. We met for lunch that week and told him my story and told him I needed to start serving. And so that's what I did. And so what I removed from my life, I re-injected with getting involved in the church. And my also personality type is, is that I never like am halfway into anything. It's like all in. And so I was working probably 80, 90 hours a week, normal, you know, normal for that world and, and, and wasn't married with anything at the time. Um, and so, so I decided that I'm just going to invest every waking hour into the church because if I'm at the church, I'm not going to be able to do some of those things I'm trying not to do any longer. And so I worked, I was at church and I slept. I work, I was at church and I slept and somewhere in between there I ate. Um, (laughs) And that is what fueled my passion for the church. And, And the long fast forward to that story is that five years later, 
my passion for business and entrepreneurialism never died. It's still in me today and it wires me. But my passion for the church and reaching people for Christ and leveraging technology to spread the gospel and to reach people all over just eclipsed mm. that passion for business. And that's what happened in 1999 when I went full time into ministry um, is that that eclipse just happened. And and so that just made the shift. And I, I, I left business. I left kind of that entrepreneurial side and decided just to give my life to the church. Um, and that was kind of that's been my journey. And so since 1999 into today, um, I've been a full time ministry. And that uh, that focus on using your uh, using your your natural gifts, if you like, that the talents God has given you for Him to reach people with the gospel, takes us nicely into you version. And I'm I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you because I'm an avid you version user. It's on my phone. I'm in the middle of a reading plan. I do it every day. It's fantastic. Um, and 200, now give me the numbers. How many, how many hundreds of millions of downloads are we so at now? So as of right now, when I looked in my earlier interview, it was 287,711. Wow. Um, and so, so, and I said thousand, million, 287 million, million uh, 711,000. Um, and that just keeps ticking upwards at about five and a half million new downloads a month. Tell me about the the birth of you version. Yeah, so so uh, my boss and co-founder as well, Bobby Grunewald, and I started. Um, started this together um, back in 2007. He had the vision in 2006 um, of it, and and he tells that story in a beautiful way that only he can, and I'll try. Um, but he was in a security line in the Chicago O'Hare Airport, um, and if and if you carry yourself back to 2006, technology looked a lot different. Mm. That was kind of the rise of blogging. That was the rise of of content creation. It was kind of before social media, um, Facebook and Twitter were still early, early on, um, and and Facebook at that time was just getting outside of the college market. So mm. no one knew what those were. But the rise of technology looked like blogging, and so now I have a thought, I have an idea, I can easily share that with the world. Flickr, which today sharing photos with Instagram and Facebook is so easy, 2006, it was insanely complicated. Flickr came out and it made, I took a picture and now I can share this with the world, super easy. So it was all about sharing content. And so the idea with version back then was all of these stories were coming out into, you know, into the web and able to publish content. But we weren't seeing the Bible intersect in any way, shape, or form. So the thought was, how could the Bible be a part of that story? How, when someone is sharing a, a YouTube uh, um, video, a Flickr photo, or a blog, if this thought of, in the beginning, God created and I wrote something, how could I associate that with a verse or series of verses? And that was the original concept of version: is allowing the Bible to intersect all of these stories that were, you know, that were going on. And so that started in 2007 as a website. And most people don't know version today as a website is because it failed. Oh. Uh, that concept oh. and that idea, um, the the super cool way to talk about that now with high-tech companies, it's called a pivot. Um, we just <laughs> called it a failure. Um, it just didn't work. It didn't take off. Um, there, there were pieces of it that we just felt um, were a little bit ahead of its time. And we were really close to shutting the project down Um, because kind of our ethos and how we're wired um, is that we don't hold on to bad ideas. We like to just keep trying. And we were really close to shutting that down. But the one thing that Bobby and I both were avid users of at the time, and you may remember this, was called a BlackBerry. Uh, Oh, I vaguely remember a BlackBerry. Vaguely remember those. Those are the ones with the real actual buttons, right? Actual button keyboard. buttons. Yep. yep. Yeah. Actual buttons. And they were hot at Mm. the time. That was the smartphone of all smartphones. Um, And so we had this crazy harebrained idea that what if we took this really complex Bible website, simplified it, and put it on our phones? What would happen with that? And so we quickly threw together a mobile version of it, and two things happened. 
the first thing that happened is our traffic to that mobile site went up 10, 15 times the amount of people that were accessing that. Come to find out what also was intersecting uh, intersecting at the time is that the first iPhone was just about to release. Didn't have apps on it yet, but it also kind of came right along those lines of where people started becoming familiar with connecting with content on their in, in their hands. Mm. So that happened at that same time. So traffic went up. But what really shaped us was more of what we saw in ourselves and our team. What really shaped us is that both Bobby and I were pastors at the time, but at the time we would tell you is that we had a desire to read the Bible on a regular basis, but we would be those ones that it would sit on our bookshelf or it would sit next to our bed and we wouldn't open it as much as we wanted to. Um, We had desire to do it, but we just weren't doing as much as we wanted to. And the moment that that became available on the mobile device, it was with us everywhere that we went. Mm -hmm. So not only were my email and my text messages with me, the Bible app is with me everywhere that I go. And what we were finding is that we're reading it more than we ever did and that we're engaged in Scripture more than we ever did. And that's when we realized we're onto something. We, we were no, had no idea that, that we would actually read on that tiny little screen, but we did. And that is kind of how that journey began into mobile and to what we now know as the Uversion Bible app. And the growth since then has been, as we, we talked about the numbers a second yeah. ago, has been huge. Yeah, astronomical. And, and that, I th- is that not due partly as well to the continued uh, invention and kind of entrepreneurial thought that obviously goes on behind the scenes as new uh, elements of the app are introduced. So, you know, you've got plans, you've got, uh, you know, the ability to to share verses, to share thoughts, to share notes, you know, all of a sudden it's become, as well as just having the Bible on your phone, it's become a real interactive social device. That's right. Yeah, we we think that's really important. Um, We want, um, we love the big numbers. I love celebrating over a quarter billion, you know, uh, uh, users and growing. And we've got internal goals at a billion and beyond and every tribe, every nation. Um, Those numbers are great. But our internal driver is engagement. Um, Because it's, it's, I remember myself is that I weren't I was not lacking Bibles. I had plenty of them in my house. I just wasn't reading them. Mm. Um, and and so our desire is to not only get the app on every device um, that it can handle it across the globe is that we truly have desires to get everybody to engage in it. And that's what motivates us. That's what drives us. And so we're constantly looking at technology trends. We're constantly looking at behavior. We're constantly looking at, at what's working and, and what's working across. And what of those can we, can we apply to a Bible standpoint? What of those ideas um, that will work from a Bible context? What new things can we come up with and create that simply can help people engage in God's word on an everyday basis. So you're 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 spot on. Some of the things that are the most actively used features inside the app are what you described as plans. Mm-hmm. What 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 is so simple but revolutionary about plans is we hear from lots of our users is that the they don't even know where to start. The Bible is complex. Right. I have no idea. I, I know I'm supposed to read this thing, but but how do I do that? Plans is designed to answer that question for people, is that is that we're continuing to move easier and easier and easier to get people on-ramped into just doing what they desire to do but have a hard time doing. So plans is growing, sharing um, that's kind of the 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 external, you know, of God's doing and moving something in our lives. And so, what we were seeing is that trend was was on a crazy up into the right uh, up into the right peak. And many years ago, we were seeing where where media sharing was going and and Instagram's explosive growth. And that just kind of spawned the the why not have visual verses of the day and and so that just put fuel on the fire and we're seeing we're seeing uh, I believe at the time that we're recording this is that we see about 350 to 370,000 verses shared a day. Wow. Um, and that's just continuing to grow um, at a fairly fast rate. Um, and so we try and see what people enjoy doing and how do we get the Bible engaged in um, that, that that's going to pull them in. And so, yeah. 
We, we've had uh, recently here in the UK some slightly depressing statistics about um, the, um, the, uh, the amount of uh, people, the number of people who are actually reading the Bible, even within churches. So outside of a Sunday, when you're in a church service, um, the majority of people in the Church of England, we've heard uh, over the last few weeks, um, don't read the Bible, um, which seems a bit crazy, bearing in mind, you know, we're Christians and this is God's word. So uh, how? why is that? Why aren't we getting into the Bible as much as we should do? I mean, you've, we've, we've kind of talked a bit about not knowing where to start, a bit about um, unless you have uh, an app like you version you know, having to find the book and get it and open it. Um, why aren't we more into our Bibles? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I believe it's a challenge. I believe it goes all the way back to, to the vision and the heart of what we saw when we moved, when we moved from a, a clunky web interface to, to, to us not really um, having a desire to read the Bible, but even though that was on my bookshelf and, and easily accessible that we didn't really do that, um, it, it becomes an interface challenge, becomes an accessibility challenge. And, and so I think the story that, that needs to continually be, be pushed on is, is that it's, it's easily accessible mm. on your device mm. um, and, and have it there. And, and what we're seeing, um, we're seeing the inverse of that. Is that we're seeing um, people that are engaged in the Bible app. We're seeing that that those that have taken that step, that that engagement is going up. We're seeing our daily active users, you know, going up. We're seeing our monthly actives, you know, move, you know, move the needle. And so, so I think that the challenge that that the church as a whole, you know, continues to struggle with. Is is transitioning some of what's viewed, even though we don't necessarily, um, as longtime believers, view this this book that might not necessarily be relevant to my life, you know, today. And so I'm not going to read it because it's this old thing, you know, that's in a pew and 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 it's accessible to me when I'm in church on Sunday. It's how do we take that book that's in a pew and move it out of the pew and move it onto something that's with them everywhere that they we go mm. and that's what's driving us of trying to move people into that economy because I see how it's changed my life um, and I see how it's changed so many lives of people on our team and I see how it's changed I mean countless people that we interface with and hear their stories of just simply that that having that Bible with them every day what you and I know we live mm. this now is that God's word is transformational mm. it will not be returned on void um, and just having it with with us and making that part is that we know that that's true, and so how do we how do we move people from you know from something that is no longer relevant, which we know it is, but they view it that way, to move it into that space that it's with them everywhere that they go, lower the barrier of entry, and make it super easy to connect with God's word and trust that He's going to do great things with that. And surely that the, the future of the church has to go in a, in a, in an digitally innovative direction you know one of one of my great frustrations i'm sure this is true for you as well terry is how slow sometimes part of the church uh parts of the church are at engaging with technology in seeing technology as a friend and something that can be used uh to reach people with the gospel to engage with god's word to uh to pray with each other across uh distances to to share all this kind of stuff you know we have to find ways to be more engaged in the future yeah yeah it's true we um the good news that i bring is that um i see great transformation happening there i see the desire there i mean multiple meetings of just being here in london with um with uh with or organizations that have been established longer than the united states uh, um and, and welcome to the uk that's right and and their desire to get there so I believe that God's God's working through His church, mm. um, and I think that we're going to get there. There's no doubt that as a as a recovering entrepreneur, nothing moves as fast <laughs> as I want it to move. And um, but I just trust and believe that God God's love and passion for His church is well deeper than mine mm. uh, and my love for it. And I know that He desires that. And I see I see the right efforts moving in the right direction. Um, it, if if we 
look back just a little bit in history, and you can do this better being here in the UK, um, <laughs> from a history standpoint, is that there was a centermost point of time where the church was the most innovative organization. Um, it, it was at the epicenter of every city that was built. There was a church in the middle, and the church was where the innovation came from. And and so it's not a foreign thing um, for the church to be at the center of, of innovation. Um, it's just we're at this place of where innovation kind of left the church and the church left, you know, innovation. Mm. And I believe that it needs to be reclaimed and, and that those two don't need to be at odds with one another. Those two don't need to be, you know, polarizing statements in a conversation of that the church and innovation. Um, and we're going to need to reclaim that. And I believe that we're seeing that. That's why I love the fact that, as we talked about earlier, is that the Version Bible has actually birthed out of a local church. Mm. We actually don't believe that that's on accident. Um, and we believe that, that that's what God's going to continue to do. And we we stand prepared to 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 join other local churches in in the rise of, of having technology intersect um, the kingdom uh, and kingdom efforts. Mm. And, and it's happening. Maybe not as fast as you and I would like, um, but it is happening. We've got literally one or two minutes left, and I have not even mentioned Life.Church yet, but I do want to do that because you have this great title of Digerati Pastor. Is that what it is? Yes, sir. That's correct. I love that. Tell me very briefly, because only because I think it could be a great resource for people listening, um, about what what Life.Church is, because it is, in a way, uh, extending this whole digital engagement and sharing ideas um, with with church leaders and and Christians. That's right. So so we are a multi site church based out of Oklahoma. Our founding and lead pastor, Pastor Craig Groeschel, um, is an amazing leader, an amazing pastor. We we're a multi site a multi site church. We have twenty nine locations in the United States and continuing to grow. Um, and at the heartbeat and epicenter of what I get the privilege to do is to lead all of our digital efforts and and we we have an internal like axiom and an internal vision is is that we're going to lead the way with a rational generosity because we believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive and so all of the things that I get the humble opportunity to do out of our great leadership team and senior pastor is how do we give away these technology efforts and so you can you can visit life.church and learn more about the church or you can uh, um, there's a whole area that you'll find there that's called Open Network, and that's where we give away all of our resources. So any sermons, anything that the church builds and makes, we give that away. And we've got almost 500,000 pastors and church leaders around the globe that access free resources. We give away free apps that helps help churches. We obviously give away the free Bible app um, from that standpoint. We have a church online ministry that reaches 225,000 people every week um, and praying with them and seeing people come to Christ across the globe. And so that's a, a in a, in a two-minute dissertation, <laughs> what what I have an opportunity and privilege to lead. Um, but yes, it's through through Life.Church, amazing pastor, um, Craig Rochelle, that leads it all. Um, and so absolutely check that out. Terry Storch, co-founder of the Version Bible app and Digirati pastor at Life Church. Stay with Premier Christian Radio for a Premier Playback on the way next.